It's Danielle Patrice, author of Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence. I'm listening to When Dating Hurts podcast. I love listening to it because it allows victims, it allows survivors to speak their truth, to be heard, and to be acknowledged as resilient as we are. The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know. And that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. This is part two a continuation of my informative conversation with David Keck, the host of the Surviving Podcast. So we drove home exhausted, but we knew that we had at least 15 years of having some closure, let's call it. I, I've heard so many people saying I can even personally relate to having that moment of feeling sorry or feeling some kind of an uh, emotion toward the bad guy. Any sorrow I felt I'm over with, believe me. I look at him, let me put it this way, his mind, probably from birth, he was on some path, on some power and control path. And over the course of time, he added tools to that. He formed it into something. He paid attention to the wrong people, let's say. The way it's supposed to work is that you're not born an abuser. You're born a regular person who maybe has, as I said, power and control needs. And we all have that to some degree. But you know when you're out of your element. You know when you're uncomfortable walking into a room. And you know when you're comfortable walking into a room in your life. You get a little, a little antsy before the big test or playing that game or meeting new people, different things like that. And if you walked into a party every day of the week, you'd probably get to the point where it just becomes pretty normal. It's a confidence issue. It's a shyness issue. It's all these things, but we all handle it differently. We all find ways to cope in life. Some people find ways to cope by throwing the first punch, so to speak. They lash out and then they go, whoa, look, things are working my way. So you can go that route or not. Most people don't go that route, but these people weaponize themselves over the course of time they see that what some of their friends who are maybe not nice people what they do and they think boy i want to do more of that i'm going to use that language i'm going to use that style i'm going to dress that way i'm going to push people around like that and this guy clearly was that guy and he understood from the very beginning that and it's not that everybody in your life that you've met that does nice things is a predator by any stretch but these people use it to suck you in and get you in the web. And once you're in the web, you find a very difficult time ever getting out of it. Bottom line is, I'll tell you who I feel sorry for. I don't feel sorry for me. I don't feel sorry for my family. I feel sorry for the next one 
I feel sorry for the next Kristen Mitchell. I feel sorry for the next one that gets trapped, who gets lured in, sees the candy, takes a step forward. Oh, look, he has this and he has this. And wow, he's handsome. He goes to the gym all the time. And this guy is like the Barbie and Ken story. Like he's the Ken doll I've been looking for. Not a reference to the movie, I didn't mean, but I mean, he's like that thing. It's like, whoa, whoa, I'd like to be seen with him. So they get taken down that path with that thing. And then they start to see who's really there. The mask slowly but surely slides off and they see the real person. And a lot of people in my podcast, it's the same thing over and over. I feel like I'm listening to the same template of the same story. It's just the names, the faces, the actual stuff that takes place is a little bit different. Right. But mostly I feel sorry for those this happens to. And I feel those hit or already has happened to, and I feel sorry for the families of all those people and their friends. A lot of my daughter's friends went through therapy after this happened because they thought, well, you fall in love with somebody and then they do these things to you and they could kill you. I don't really think I want to have a boyfriend or I don't think I want to have a girlfriend to some of her other friends. Yeah. So I feel sorry for the next one. Did his family ever reach out to you all? Was there ever any correspondence with them? Any apologies? I can make the answer short. The answer is no. Big no. The only time I got a glimpse of anybody from the family was first there's a preliminary hearing. Okay. And that's just to determine if there's even a case here. Of course, there's a case in our case. But what could have been in there before were two guys arguing over He ran his lawnmower on my lawn. So anything can walk in that room. So there's that. I saw the brother briefly in the back of the room wearing a suit. And as soon as things were starting to wind down, he was out of there. He didn't really, I'm sure, want any opportunity to be talked with or anything. Second time was at something that's called the formal arraignment. He was there in that, somewhere in the back of the courtroom. Formal arraignment is when they get up and say, okay, here are the charges. First degree murder, third degree murder. And a use of a weapon or whatever it is, all these things, they basically go through, could be 20 things. Most of them will disappear by the time it ever makes it to a courtroom. The third time was the plea and sentencing that I talked about earlier. He was not there at that. In fact, they wanted to move that date. This is almost laughable. They wanted to move that date of the plea sentencing because his family was going to be traveling in Europe at that time. So they said that they couldn't make it. It was decided too bad. We're going ahead with this. No, they didn't. No, I didn't get anything from them. Any sort of admission or I'm so sorry. And I don't know why my brother did it or whatever you would put in a script. And that's fine. I wasn't thinking it was going to happen. Oh, actually, I'll give you one thing. Is my daughter once called from what was his cell phone. Okay. Now, this is about about a month or less before she was killed. She called me. I didn't recognize the number. And I said, who is this? And she said, dad, it's Kristen. I borrowed his phone because hers was in the bathroom and it slid into the sink. She drowned her phone. (laughs) So I had that number and it occurred to me about a month after she was killed that I had this number. So I called it figuring, well, I doubt if he has a cell phone in jail and darn if his sister didn't pick up. Okay. Now she was a few years older than he was, not a lot, but a few. And she was working at a nurse in a hospital up there. So she was like a good person, let's say. Let's hope. 
we've spoke for, I want to say a half an hour. Strangest thing. I, I actually forgot about this. She took the only position she could, even though she didn't know the call was coming, which was, I'm so sorry about what happened. None of us really know what happened. None of us were in that room, but the two of them. But she was full of sorrow. At least she expressed it about what happened. But yeah, that's the closest I ever came to to having anything to do with them. And I was the one that made the call. So I still have that number somewhere. Be interesting to see who picks up. I would like to know your thoughts. Victim blaming is a real thing. When you just made the comment, and I wasn't a part of the conversation with you and his sister, and so maybe I'm thinking of it differently, but what didn't settle well with me is when you said, we don't know what happened in that room. Yes, we do. Yes, we do know what happened. Mm. (laughs) And so where I struggled with that comment, which granted, I was not a part of that conversation. It's just me creating a narrative in my head is if you're telling me we don't know what happened in that room, then you're saying there's a possibility that the deceased did something to deserve it. And that is what that implies. Sure. I'm sure what the defense needed to do to try to keep his time in prison or maybe the be lack of prison. Maybe it would be one of these, I don't know, hung jury or situations or whatever it is. He walks a situation. I'm sure they would have gone into the type of person she was. I'm sure they would have looked at it like, like he bought her breakfast, lunch and dinner kind of stuff, which evidently he did. One of her friends told us, you can look at that a couple of different ways. What a generous guy. Or you could look at it like I did this and this. You owe me, don't you? Which is the way it really is in the real world of abuse. I never really heard anything for certain that was coming our way, but I was assured it would be. I should add, by the way, if we'd gone to court, I wouldn't have been allowed in the courtroom ever. Here's why. Because on the evening before she was killed, she and I exchanged emails back and forth. There was never a time in her four years in college that she and I wrote each other three emails in the same day. I write to her, she'd write to me. I write to her, she'd write to me. Except in the last 12 hours of her life, which is pretty amazing. She expressed in her last one, which I saw, let's call it around midnight of June 2nd, day before, she died at probably around 3 a.m. of the next morning of June 3rd. I wrote to her and I was taking the high road because she was saying, we, we, I was having a difficult time with him today. He was so annoying. She was trying to spend that particular day with two friends of hers from college, two guys that she graduated with because they were, they had jobs and they were moving to Texas and New York. So she spent a lot of time with them, therefore not around him. And he was mad about that because he's a jealous guy, which is another warning sign. So I took the dad high road thing and said, look, you know, he just needs to understand you have other friends and that you are boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, these kinds of things. I didn't use those words, but yeah, the fact that we wrote emails back and forth, I was there for a potential witness can't sit in the courtroom. So I had to be literally, if it had gone to trial, I would have been in a hotel room down the street with my phone sitting there. And if they rang me over the course of what could have been three, four, five days, Then I was supposed to walk down the street, come in there. They would ask me questions for, like I said, probably five minutes. And then I'd have to leave. Maybe they would let me sit in the audience then because I've already given testimony. I don't know. But for the most part, it would have been my wife and son sitting in that courtroom with probably some friends while they're showing crime scene pictures on the projector. That's the way it was going. We weren't nuts about going to trial. The lead reason for not going to trial 
we didn't think we would ever get first degree on him because there was no indication from anything we had heard over 10 months that he went there with the intent to kill her. We think it's an argument that escalated. And unfortunately, arguments that escalate in kitchens, that's the worst room you could pick because there are sharp objects like steak knives. I would like to spend the next few minutes discussing this book, this podcast, When Dating Hurts. Tell us, when did you have that moment of, I've got to do something. I've got to bring awareness. I've got to defend my daughter's legacy, really just start hitting it. The first thing that came along, okay, so she was killed on June 3rd, 2005. In November, we were asked to come to a memorial service at her school one of these candlelight vigils where they say a lot of prayers and walk around. And it's a Jesuit school, so there is a bent towards religion. And I have to say, when all this went down, to me, it wasn't so much about religion or anything. It was just your relationship with life, relationship with why are we here. All of those things became a lot stronger. So you can call it God. I'm not about what brand you are. Anyway, but we were asked if we wanted to get up and talk at the memorial service that we could. So I wanted to, and my wife wanted to, and my son. So we wrote our own parts. They had other people there who were from Washington talking about domestic violence and all these thick statistics, and they did it in a chapel. And I'd say that there was probably a couple hundred people there. This person from Washington was supposed to speak for 10 or 15 minutes. She did 45 minutes, and I was getting really antsy because I made a short video, and I had a speech, and my son had a speech. My wife had a speech, and I thought... As soon as this woman stops, everybody's going to leave because it's a school night. It's a Thursday night, but people stayed. Part of the reason maybe is because I ran up and turned the video on and cranked the sound up. So, oh, there's more because people didn't know. Yeah. Then we had the chance to speak and we spoke separately. That room was dead silent and they were hanging on every word. So when it was over, we got a lot of hugs and that was so powerful. And I thought, pretty interesting. That room was quiet. That made me think about giving talks. But again, I didn't know all the facts and figures and motivations behind domestic violence and things, which I had a lot of homework I had to hurry up and do. Very fortunately, I ran into a lot of domestic violence agency directors and counselors that I talk with. And I said, I need to know this stuff because I can't get up and talk if I can't answer questions. Anyway, I got a whole bunch of speeches over the course of time. I've probably given nearly 200 by now. So that was 05, about 10 years later that I started thinking about writing the book. And I started in the summer of 2015. And the way I started was I wrote articles and put them on LinkedIn. And the response was positive. I didn't get tons of response, but I got a lot of comments. And one of the ones after I put about the 12th article on there was, why don't you stop writing these articles and why don't you write the book? I got to work on it. It took about four years to do the book. Didn't work on it every day. Didn't really right. know if I'd pull it off. Didn't know if I should get an agent. Didn't know if I would self-publish, but I wound up self-publishing. I did that mostly because I was in control of when it would happen, what it would say. So I wrote the book. I formatted the book. I did the cover. I shot the cover. And this is going to sound bad unless you've seen it. I shot the cover with an iPhone. Didn't go to some studio, although I have friends who have studios. So I did all that. And once I got the book out, the response was fabulous. And I thought, okay, the book's out. I felt like I lost a close friend because I'd had that book as this go-to for parts, at least, of four years. So I immediately did an ebook version, formatted that, which, is, which was a junior nightmare, but I got it out. 
then I started thinking, what else can I do? So I did the audio book. So I read the whole book, edited the book, put it all together, found somebody to upload that. I felt like I'd lost another friend when that was out. That's when I started getting the courage to try a podcast. I think doing the ebook after listening to my own voice and editing it, I was thinking, I think it's passable. So the podcast and so the book came out in 2020. So did the ebook. The audio book was probably a year later. So I didn't immediately throw myself at that. And then the podcast has been about two and a half years ago, beginning of 2021, I would say, yeah. was the podcast. All of them are called When Dating Hurts. My website's whendatinghurts.com. So much like you, David, I keep feeding the beast. I'm very fortunate because I have survivors coming to me, so I don't have to go after them nowadays. I've been on some, like with you, like today, what we're doing, I've been on some large podcasts, and that tends to uh, get more people to come to me, which is nice. The more people that come to me, the more they can learn about dating and domestic right. violence, right. and therefore maybe fend off the problem before it becomes a major part of your life which is really important. David, the only statistic I'd like to throw in, which is quick, yeah, please, is this one. It's the only one I ever use in speeches or anywhere I go, and it's the truth. And actually, I think the number is actually larger than this. But the only statistic I use is that one in three women suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. That's 33% of all women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship and typically, it happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen to any woman at any age. And I've talked with 11 and 12-year-olds, and I would talk with people in their 60s and 70s who, in some cases, experienced it, and in some cases, are continuing to experience it. I met a woman who was in a relationship like that, the guy she dated and later her husband, for 40 years. I can't imagine being physically and emotionally abused for four decades and eventually she got out of it and like most people you're thinking why'd you wait so long and if you heard her story you'd say now i understand my community is growing oh, we're, that's nice and everyone's just so great and so supportive thank you for being krista mitchell's dad keeping her legacy alive and doing some great things david look thanks for asking me to come and speak on your show and I was doing some research on your show, and I don't know if you know this, but on at least through Apple Podcasts, you have a 5.0. You have the highest grade that you could possibly get. You got the 5.0, and yeah. a lot of people have chimed in with reviews. So I'm excited that you asked me to be on your show. You've got a, a successful podcast, and a successful meaning that it really strikes people. They give you high grades as a host. They love the way you handle the guests that you have on, the questions you ask, the follow-ups, all of those things. I mean, everything you'd ever want to hear is on there. So it's its an honor to be now part of your team and please be part of mine. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. And see, guys, this is why I do things at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, because I end on these notes that make me feel good. And I've got productive things I've got to do today. And now I'm going to do it on a high note. So this is why I do that. <laughs> <laughs> now everybody Tell gets it. So tell everybody where we can find your book, your podcast, and continue to follow and learn about you and Kristen. In terms of the book itself, the paperback, the ebook, and the audiobook you can get through Amazon or Audible if you want to. I would just tell people to go to Amazon, put in When Dating Hurts. It'll take you right there. I look in there all the time. 
And by the way, if you like any of those when you're reading them, please give me a star rating. And if you have more time, give me some kind of a review. You do not have to write a review to give a star rating, by the way. I appreciate it because I think that star ratings encourage people, like any endorsement, to maybe consider getting it. It's something, too, that, by the way, you want to get it and read it, but you also want to give the book to someone else. You can give them the book you bought. I'm not trying to necessarily make book sales here. I'm trying to improve and save lives. So that's that. The podcast is called When Dating Hurts. You'll find When Dating Hurts. It's easy. And if you want to get in touch for some reason, just go to whendatinghurts.com. So it's all When Dating Hurts. You don't have to put Bill Mitchell in. Just put When Dating Hurts and you'll find me. And yeah, I'm here to help. I really am. I can't fix our situation. I can't physically bring Kristen back. She never left us spiritually. I do feel her presence at times. If you read the book, you'll see what I mean, because it does include a a miraculous situation in there that I defy anybody to call it anything more than than, uh, a miracle. And that wraps up another powerful episode of Surviving Abuse. This concludes my two-part interview with David Keck of the Surviving Podcast. I thank David for his invitation to join him and tell my family's story. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts Podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.